The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So tonight I'd like to uh, continue the theme that I um, started a few weeks ago on the uh, one of the lists, one of the Buddhist lists called the Paramis or the Ten Perfections, which is a beautiful list of wholesome qualities of mind that um, we both actively cultivate in our practice. We look for ways to support them and increase their um, occurrence in our lives. And also we find that they are kind of an expression. um, These are qualities that are uh, a natural expression of someone who has really let go and who has really... um, found the way to freedom from greed, aversion, and delusion. And so they, they um, can be seen as things to cultivate and qualities to cultivate, but also as just a natural expression of the awakened heart. So I've talked about, I'll just name them first, just to give the, the overall list, to put it in context. They are um, generosity, Ethics, renunciation, which is our topic for tonight, Uh, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. So it's a beautiful list. And they, one of the ways this, wis, this list is explored is um, that each one supports the cultivation and the unfolding of the next when, we, when they're looked at in a kind of a sequential way. And, but we can't really develop them sequentially. A few weeks ago I explored this, that if I even thought about the first one, thought about generosity... As, as I explored how one might cultivate generosity and what, what qualities would come along as you were looking at and exploring, practicing generosity, I found pathways to all the other qualities. And so as you even turn towards any one of these qualities, you'll be pulling along all the other ones. And yet there is kind of a, a traditional ordering and a, tr- a traditional understanding of how they support each other. And so the, the cultivation of, of generosity, as we cultivate that um, sense of wanting to give and to um, be in connection and in community, because generosity is really an expression of community and relationship. And as we deepen that connection through practice of generosity of um, not just financial support, not just that kind of material kind of generosity, but generosity of heart, of, of willingness to meet people and be present for them. As that's cultivated, there becomes this movement towards, as that connection is developed, there's a very natural movement towards wanting to engage in community from a perspective of non-harming. I thought that would be a very, that's a very natural outgrowth of that connectedness that happens 
from the practice of generosity. And so that's the second quality, the quality of ethics, of basically the cultivation, the practice of non-harming in community. And with that um, exploration of non-harming, we practice some letting go of particular actions that will result in harm. Refraining from killing living beings, refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from uh, harming with our sexuality, refraining from false speech, and refraining from intoxicants that cloud the mind. And so that practice of refraining then leads on towards or moves in the direction of this quality of renunciation. Letting go of um, actions, of qualities of mind that take us in the direction of harming, that take us in the direction of harming others and also harming ourselves. I think that's the transition point. The exploration of ethics is initially looked at as being a refraining from activities that will harm others. But as I think I explored last time, the, the movement to refrain from harming, harming others supports ourselves because then we are not in the position of having regret and remorse and feeling, um, feeling uh, that sense of having harmed, that, 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 the, the feelings that come with that. And so the, uh, the movement to, um, towards renunciation is, is basically, it's a movement towards letting go of a direction of mind that leads us to being caught and leads us to struggle and suffering. And yet that word, renunciation, does not have a very good reputation especially in our culture. I mean, this is, it's not a bad translation in a, in a way, I think, because I looked up some various shadings of the word of renunciation. And there are aspects of the, of the word that, that, that really do resonate with the meaning. I'll go into those in just a minute. But I'll just also now point that, you know, so in our culture, in our time, this, there's, there's kind of a resistance to renunciation, especially when we realize that one of the key things the Buddha is pointing us to renouncing, letting go of, is sense desire, is sense pleasure. And so I wanted to start with a quote from the suttas that gives us a connection to people 2,500 years ago for whom this word also was not a very congenial uh, thing. So we can see this is not just about our culture. And so um, the, um, these householders or people who live in the, in the world, have homes, have families, have jobs. They came to, um, to the Buddha and they said, we are householders who indulge in sensuality delight in sensuality, enjoy sensuality, rejoice in sensuality. For us, indulging in sensuality, delighting in sensuality, enjoying sensuality, rejoicing in sensuality, renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off. Yet I've heard that in this dhamma, in this practice that you teach, 
the hearts of the very young monks leap up at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace. So right here is where this teaching is contrary to the great mass of people. That is, this issue of renunciation. So I like this, uh, the framing of this, the, the looking at, or the use of the phrase, renunciation is like a sheer drop-off. That's very evocative. It really does kind of evoke what I think we fear with renunciation. In particular, around renouncing sense pleasure and sense desire, it kind of feels like, well, if I renounce that, where on earth or how on earth could I possibly be happy? It's like, we don't understand how happiness might come apart from having sensual pleasures in our lives. In fact, most of our orientation in our lives in terms of finding happiness has to do with finding ways to increase sense pleasure, either by having things that are pleasant around us or getting rid of things that are unpleasant, kind of constructing a world as best we can to maximize the pleasant. And while we realize that it's probably not possible to always have pleasant, some part of our mind does realize that, the way that we behave is as if that is, that is the way to happiness. And that finding, getting that sense pleasure is as good as it gets, basically. And that the best possible life would be if we could, like, we know that these moments of pleasure are like these little bubbles, perhaps, you know, these little incidents or senses of, okay, there's, that's a, a beautiful, that's, that's great. That experience, that condition, all of those things coming together, that's, that's, that's happiness. And then we, we realize that it's probably not going to last too long. So we work really hard to get the next one. And if we could like string these experiences like pearls on a string, then that would be what we would call happiness. And so we are very conditioned in this way. We're conditioned in this direction to believe this. And in fact, largely in our lives, the way we have been happy, the way we have found happiness is this way. And so to be told that renouncing that is good, it's like, prove it to me. You know, I don't believe you. <laughs> why, why, why would renouncing that be good? So I'd like to read some more of this sutta because I find it telling and uh, interesting also. So after hearing this from these people in the, the Buddhist time, after the, these householders came to the Buddha and said this, he said, so it is, so it is. Even I myself, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, thought, renunciation is good, seclusion is good, but my heart did not leap up at renunciation. It did not grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace. So even the Buddha, before he was awakened, 
had this same qualm, <laughs> this same thing. So we're in good company. The fact if you have this qualm tonight, <laughs> let's explore what the Buddha, what the Buddha did, how he explored this. So he said, um, the thought occurred to me, what is the reason why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation, doesn't see it as peace? Then the thought occurred to me, I haven't seen the drawbacks of sensual pleasures. I haven't pursued that theme. I haven't understood the reward of renunciation. I haven't familiarized myself with that. That is why my heart does not leap up at renunciation, seeing it as peace. And then it goes on and it says, So at a later time, having seen the drawbacks of sensual pleasure... I understood that. I understood, and having understood the reward of renunciation, my heart leapt up at renunciation, grew confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace. So this was not a single thing. You know, this is not a single night's work here. Some time later. (laughs) So this exploration of pursuing the, what are the drawbacks of sensual pleasure? What are the rewards of renunciation? Was a practice was an exploration for him. And that's, he, he offered us some teachings around what, what, I, it's what I understand to be part of this reflection for him. He offered us some teachings, and so that's part of what I'd like to explore today. But first I'd like to look at this word renunciation and you know, kind of point in the direction to start before we look at letting go of sense pleasures, to look at some of the, wor- the, the things that this word evokes in us and to um, see if we can at least find the right set of words. Because I think some of the flavors of that word for us are not the connotation that is helpful. So when I looked up renunciation, it had some, uh, some synonyms for basic ones, for basic flavors. Disavowal, repudiation, forego, and abandon. So the first two, disavowal, is like, you know, saying that I, well, I disavow you. You know, it's like I I take you out of my life somehow. And that is not possible to do with sense pleasure. Sense pleasures will happen in our lives. This is part of the conditions of living in the world, that pleasant things will happen and unpleasant things will happen. And so we can't really disavow sense pleasure. We can't cut it out that way. It's a very natural part of our experience. Repudiation has a sense of rejecting with condemnation. And that has a quality of aversion to it. It's saying something is bad, it's wrong, it shouldn't be here. And that flavor of aversion and condemnation also is not the, the, the flavor of renunciation. That um, um, quality of an aversive, like bad sense pleasure, bad, bad, that, again, it's not, that's not what the Buddha is pointing to in renunciation. 
I think the word forego is probably the best exploration. And I looked up forego and came up with these synonyms. To give up, to do without, to yield, to relinquish, to surrender. Those kinds of things. And so the, uh, the exploration of renunciation has more that quality of foregoing or relinquishing or surrendering. The framework that the Buddha offered to explore, he, he said, I, I haven't looked at the drawbacks of sense pleasure and I haven't looked at the rewards of renunciation. And so the, the drawbacks of sense pleasure, he gave us a, a three-part practice to look at this. He said the very first thing we need to understand is how is sense pleasure gratifying? I like this because it's starting right where we are, which is that we feel that sense pleasure is gratifying. It feels good. And so the Buddha asked us, his suggestion was, look at that. What is gratifying about sense pleasure? Why does it feel good? And so, this, to me, this is a great um, kind of pointing to a lot of the way the Buddhist teachings work, which is we don't try to be someplace other than where we are. We start right where we are and look at that. There is a pleasure, a happiness that comes with having sensual pleasure in our experience. Having pleasant smells, pleasant tastes, pleasant sights, pleasant touches, pleasant sounds. It's clear that there is a kind of a gratification to having that. It feels good. That the pleasure itself feels good. The, the exploration, the Buddha says, is so, okay, when you have sense pleasure, what is it that feels good about that? How and why does it feel good? And he asks us also to explore, in particular, I think the wording is something like, how far does that gratification extend? How long does it last, essentially? And so to look at that, to see when we have sense pleasure in our lives, what is, how long does, how long does the pleasure of that really last? So basically this is a pointer to impermanence, to ask us to explore the impermanent nature of the sense experience and the, and the pleasurable, in particular, the pleasurable aspects of our sense experience. When we start to get really connected to the impermanent, ephemeral nature of our sense experience, we see, wow, you know, gosh, you know, what, what's going on here is I'm trying to hold on to these things. I'm trying to, 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 to keep this sense pleasure, but it's like trying to hold on to water. It just runs through your fingers. And so any, any, any attempt to hold on to it is going to be frustrating. It's going to lead to a sense of, this doesn't work very well. So 
there's some similes in the in the suttas that I wanted to read. Let's see if I can find it. Here it is. One simile about um, kind of how sense pleasure functions for us. Suppose you dreamt about lovely parks, lovely groves, lovely meadows, and lovely lakes. There would be some pleasure in that, perhaps. A pleasant dream, right? In a pleasant dream. But then upon waking, you see nothing of it. So too, a noble disciple considers sense pleasures have been compared to a dream. So they're, they're kind of like that. They're ephemeral. They, they, they last for a little while and then, you know, they go away. So it goes on. Having seen this as it actually is with proper wisdom, clinging to material things of this world ceases without remainder. So he's pointing to, again, just the seeing the ephemeral nature of the sense pleasure. The clinging to that ceases. Now, it's not the sense pleasure that ceases, but the the feeling like, I need that for happiness. I need that to be happy. That begins to cease. There's another really important piece here that I think also lends to some of the confusion around um, renunciation of sense pleasure. And that is that one, one thing that starts to happen as we really become more and more present, as our minds get more quiet and still, sense pleasures become heightened. We walk out into the world when our mind is still. And a simple thing like seeing a tree or looking at the sky can be just Amazing or hearing a bird. Just in the silence, the sound of a bird appears and it's... There's an exquisiteness to it. Paradoxically, that exquisiteness of that pleasure is not... is related to the fact that you're not clinging to it. That when we try to go, oh, what is that bird? Oh, let me try to hear it again. When we're doing that, we're not in that place of just the receiving of that experience in the moment. And so there's this interesting thing that starts to happen as we really become more present, that sense pleasures become heightened. This is not a problem. This is not what the Buddha meant by needing to renounce sense pleasure. In fact, in various places it says we need to renounce the clinging to sense pleasure. The the holding on to sense pleasure. In my own experience or exploration of that moment of really like just being there for a sight or a sound... The, the, uh, the pleasantness of that moment, the kind of real meeting of that moment, is less about the actual pleasant experience. 
or less about the pleasure in the object and more about the intimacy and connection and uh, quality of the mind. So it's kind of like um, that place of being available is the place of the open heart. And that is a beautiful experience. And so it brings, it brings a new kind of happiness to us. It's not really so much about the happiness of the object being pleasant. It's really about the happiness of connection and intimacy, the, the, the quality of the open heart. And so this exploration of sense pleasure, what's the gratification in sense pleasure? We may start to distinguish between these two types of gratification. There is a gratification when we get something, we have it, we want it, we got it. There's a kind of a gratification that happens there. I'm going to explore that in a little more detail in just a moment. And then there's this gratification in this amazing place that happens when we're not clinging. Seeing the difference between those two helps us to disentangle ourselves from the clinging, from that holding on. So the second part of this exploration that the Buddha offers us, he said, once you, when you understand the gratification and how far it extends, understand the gratification with respect to sense pleasure and how far it extends, you might start to touch in to what he called the danger of sense pleasure. So this begins to point into what he, he, he said, I, don't, I haven't understood the drawbacks of sense pleasure. And so this is, his, this is the next piece of that reflection. What are the drawbacks? What is the danger connected to sense pleasure? One of the dangers is that as we stay in that mode of getting what we want, of clinging and holding and figuring that that is the way to happiness, with this fundamental misunderstanding that getting what I want, getting rid of what I don't want, is the way to happiness, we actually can't ever move towards a more genuine kind of happiness, towards that, even just the happiness that comes that I just described, the happiness that's present with the open heart, available to meet and connect. We can't really touch into that in a, in, a, in a more um, settled or continuous way because we're so oriented towards, we may have that for a moment, but then it's like, oh, but I need to get what I want. I have to hold on to that. Let me take a picture of it. Just trying to hold on to it. The Buddha talked about this misunderstanding around happiness. He talked about um, how we get stuck, basically believing that Getting what I want will make me happy. And I'm going to describe this. He, he talked about a, a cycle that we get stuck in. So we start out, we get a moment of gratification when we get what we want, but that thing fades. And then we start wanting something else. So what happens here? There's, there's a sense of wanting to have something pleasant. There's a feeling of, I need that thing. Without, without being um, focused on or uh, aware of the internal state, our mind is out in the future thinking, 
having that thing will make me happy. And the idea of having that thing already feels pleasant. It's the idea in the mind that I will have that thing. I could control my environment to get that thing. The feeling of control feels good. The idea of having it feels good. So all of those things are happening. We're not actually noticing what it feels like to want something in that moment because our mind is entranced by the idea of what it wants. And so there is that piece of um, the kind of suffering of the wanting itself is obscured by the mind's illusion, by the mind's creation of this idea. So that's going on when we're wanting something. Then let's suppose we do actually manage to construct our world to be in line with that fantasy. There's the pleasure that comes right immediately with having had that happen. We get that pleasant thing. We feel like we're in control. There's a sense of, yes, this is right. This is the way it's supposed to be. So there's that that happens as well. Then the other piece of this that's also not usually seen is that the wanting, the wanting, the sense of, I want that to happen, that goes away for just a split second. So simultaneously with getting what we want, we also have a moment where this feeling of wanting goes away. We haven't really noticed the wanting. So we haven't really noticed the wanting going away, but we are propelled and conditioned by that. And in fact, the pleasantness of getting what we want This is the surprising part and something you can start to explore a little bit in your own experience. The pleasantness of getting what we want is largely due to the fact that the wanting goes away. That was certainly a surprise to me. Maybe I took it in in my mind. It's like, didn't quite believe it. But then in exploring in my own experience with mindfulness began actually looking at and exploring. Okay, here's a situation. And one one situation, I've told this story before, but it so clearly pointed this out to me that it's seared in my brain. I was just watching um, my mind want to look at people when I was on retreat. I wanted the pleasure of seeing who they were. And so I was doing walking meditation. And at first I was just like, you know, I'm not going to look. That was my mode of renunciation. I forced myself to not look. And uh, at some point I realized, well, wanting is happening here, so why don't I watch this? Why don't I see what happens? And so I started watching the wanting, not following through on it, but watching the feeling. I kept my eyes down, but I didn't like try to force this blinders. I was just more curious about what happens when wanting comes up. And so I was um, doing the walking meditation and I'd be perfectly happy doing walking meditation until somebody popped into the field of my peripheral vision. Boom, the wanting popped up instantly. As soon as wanting appears in your experience, there is a feeling of lack. There's a feeling that something's wrong, that something's off, and the immediate feeling is, I gotta fix this. This doesn't feel good. 
And so when we actually turn to the feeling of wanting, we find this inner off feeling. It's dukkha. It's suffering. It's, it's dissatisfaction. It is the very definition of dissatisfaction that we don't have what we want. So there's the wanting that has happened and immediately with the wanting there is a sense that something's off. And so I watched that feeling. Not giving in to the feeling, not giving in to looking. I watched it and it felt like, like this pull. Like I felt like I was off balance. So I was, I, I, you know, I was looking down and somebody might walk this way and then it was really tempting if they walked right in front of me. It's like all I'd have to do is like do that to look at them. But I, I refrained from doing that and I just watched the wanting. And then, you know, they might go up and go into a door. And the wanting went away as soon as the person disappeared. That feeling of being released from the wanting was like being released from a vice grip. That moment of seeing wanting end just in that moment it was like turning it off it flipped the switch was a tr- truly gave me the the deep understanding of just how much happiness comes with the ending of the wanting but wanting contains delusion because the wanting itself is telling you you need that thing in order to be happy Wanting is not going to tell you that if wanting goes away, you'll be happy. If wanting goes away, the suffering goes away. Wanting doesn't contribute that information into your mind. And so you have to kind of be interested in watching the wanting, seeing the process of the wanting. This is the danger with respect to sense pleasure, that we are kind of caught into the bubble, that dreamlike world of the thing that we want, and we do not see the suffering that's happening around the wanting, we're being driven by that. And what happens when we get what we want and the wanting goes away? We get a double hit of happiness because we've got the thing that we want and we've gotten that release from that vice grip. The only way we know to be happy then is to find something else to want so that the wanting will go away. To find something else to want, to have, so that the wanting will go away when we have it. And so we get caught on this cycle with the only way to happiness is to construct something to want and to have it and then have that wanting go away. And the next, next thing that's like, well, well that, that feeling of the happiness that comes from the wanting go away wanting going away around that particular instance lasts a little while and then the mind goes oh well things aren't so interesting now so well what can i do well the last time that i really felt good was when i got something i wanted so let's see if i can find something to want <laughs> i i see this this kind of mind actually joseph goldstein pointed to it at one point and i see this sometimes i get these especially at this time of year i get all these catalogs right you know so you start, I, like, I, I open a catalog. It's like I, I start flipping through it, and it's like, nope, don't want anything on that page. Nope, nope, don't, don't want anything on that page. And it's like, I, I look, it's like I'm waiting. Maybe on the next page there'll be something I want. It's like, 
This is not such a helpful state of mind. (laughs) Wanting to want. Wanting to find something to want. So we can observe this process with mindfulness. Watch the desire itself. Watch the wanting itself. Bhikkhu Bodhi says about this, This is a quote that he offered on investigating this wanting itself. In this investigation, our concern must not be with what is pleasant, but with what is true. And this is the this is the the truth of yes, it's not it's the I mean the, the pleasantness is the kind of being lost in the dream of our fantasy. You know, but what is true is that in that moment the wanting is so destabilizing. We have to be prepared and willing to discover what is true, even at the cost of our own comfort. For real security always lies on the side of truth, not on the side of comfort. So as we start to understand that root of the, uh, the danger of sense pleasure, we really do see it's the wanting that's the issue. It's not the pleasure itself. It, it, it's absolutely not the pleasure itself. It's the clinging to the sense pleasure. And in fact, even the very wanting, as soon as wanting springs up, there's already suffering. It's just not, often not seen or felt. And that's the root of the danger. And so with this also comes the understanding of how one might escape from that danger, which is an exploration of what it might mean to let go of that desire. Not to let go of sense pleasure, but to let go of the desire. This is also a challenge for us. The Buddha talked about this, and this points in this, um, in this quote. It talks about kind of the direction um, of how we might begin to uh, understand this escape, understand the way away from desiring sense pleasure as this only way to find happiness. Essentially, the Buddha points to there are other ways to be happy in the world. Our restricted perspective related to sense pleasure keeps us from seeing and experiencing deeper kinds of happiness. The one, one that I mentioned earlier, the happiness that comes from not clinging to sense pleasure, the kind of the connectedness, the open heart. So here the Buddha says, so this is on a later occasion, so this may be, you know, this is, I, I mentioned earlier, he said, I haven't understood the drawbacks of sense pleasure. I haven't understood the benefits of renunciation. On a later occasion, having understood as they really are the origin, the passing away, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of sense pleasures, I abandoned craving for sense pleasures. I removed the fever of sense pleasures, and I dwell without thirst with a mind inwardly at peace. So the, again, it, he doesn't say, I disavowed sense pleasure. I, I don't experience sense pleasure. He said, I gave up craving for sense pleasures, that wanting. 
I remove the fever of sense pleasures, and I dwell without thirst with a mind inwardly at peace. I see other people who are not free from desire for sense pleasures, being devoured by craving for sense pleasures, burning with the fever of sense pleasures, indulging in sense pleasures, and I do not envy them. Why is that? Because there is a delight apart from sense pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses even divine bliss. Since I take delight in that, I do not envy what is inferior. So this is, this is the pointing to a kind of a path towards this practice opening us to more uh, reliable forms of happiness and deeper forms of happiness, of the kind of the realm of happiness in the world. The happiness that comes from getting what we want is probably the least kind of happiness there is. There's a statement in the Dhammapada that said, if one seeing a greater happiness was possible by letting go of a lesser happiness, a wise person would let go of the lesser in favor of the greater. And so this is what the Buddha suggests. So the exploration here is, it's kind of interesting, you know, we have this... I'll just have to draw it in the air. <laughs> um, it's kind of like, you know, we're, we, we're at the top of this hill. We're a little up here on the top of this hill when we're at a place of having something that we want. And there's a greater kind of happiness. You know, so there's a hill and then there's a greater happiness. But in order to get to or understand that greater happiness, we have to let go of this lesser happiness. And it feels like we're going downhill. It feels like we're less happy in that process. Because our minds haven't quite shifted or reoriented yet. And the practice, it takes practice, it takes effort, it takes work to begin to understand some of these other kinds of happinesses. I'll just name some of them the one that I mentioned earlier, that kind of that sense of connection, the, the, the happiness of an open heart, of metta, the happiness of a concentrated mind, happiness of a mind that settles into a, kind of a, a place of um, seclusion. And in fact, sometimes concentration is talked about being secluded from unwholesome states of mind. So in concentration, we are secluded from being pulled off balance, like having the sense of like wanting things to be another way. As we develop a, a sense of being able to, you know, even just stay with the breath for a little while, we get a taste of that possibility of, ah, oh, what a relief to not be buffeted around by so much stuff. And so that's, that's another form of happiness. And it comes from um, letting go of the draw to things in the world and turning towards just being present, just being connected with experience over and over again. So that's another form of happiness that 
when, when I first started to really get a taste of the happiness of concentration, it's like, oh yeah, this is good. <laughs> it's like, I sometimes call it the oh yes state. It's just so much more um, ease and peace than is possible with the, the movement to try to get what I want and fix things and control things. So that's, that's one of the uh, greater kinds of happiness. That is what the Buddha calls divine bliss. And yet he says, there is a delight that surpasses even divine bliss. And my understanding of what he means there is the happiness of Freedom from greed, from aversion and delusion. Freedom from the... Uh, it's basically the wisdom that... In, in concentration, we are temporarily free from greed, aversion and delusion. And so we're kind of in a place where, where we're approaching or get a taste of that kind of peace that comes when we truly don't have that pull that reactive pull in our lives. And the Buddha said that this freedom from greed, from aversion, from delusion, this is peace. This is happiness. This is true happiness when we're no longer pulled around by that. And so we move through this practice. We, you know, we start where we are on the top of that little mountain. <laughs> uh, occasionally clinging to the top of that little mountain, but realizing we get dumped into the depths. It's like, then we try to go back up that mountain. Actually, I think, you know, in my own experience, what I found is that when I got dumped into the depths and just saw that going back up that mountain, I had tried, I had tried so many things to find happiness in my life. And I kind of hit bottom. And when I finally hit bottom and I was willing to, to ask, is there another way? Is there something else out there than just trying to control the world and make people do what I want them to do? Is there another way? And that's when I met these teachings. And because, I think partly because I was at this bottom, it's like I had tried so many different things to, to climb back up to that mountain and stay there. And it's like, you know... This doesn't seem to work. That maybe does, does anybody know something better? And somebody sent me a book on the Dharma. And I was willing to try. I read what it said. I read, I mean, one of the key things I got from that first book was turn your attention to your, bo- to your experience when you're reactive. That will help you to transcend it or to transform it. I'm like, right. <laughs> That's not going to work. But because I was so, I knew that nothing else had worked. It's like, well, I might as well give this a try. I don't see how it will work, but I might as well give it a try. And so I tried climbing up this other mountain. And within a very short time, very, I actually began to get a taste and understand how it worked. I had little tiny tastes of this different kind of happiness. And that was enough to convince me this is the direction. This is the direction of true happiness. 
And that's not to say that I didn't and don't still get caught by that pull to sense desire. It's very deeply conditioned. And yet, when I see that, I feel the instability of it. I know the danger. I know that it doesn't extend very far. And so that other direction has kind of more of a... It's kind of got more gravitational pull at this point than the, uh, the pull towards sense desire. And so this is, the, this is what the Buddha suggested we explore. I'll finish and then see if there's any comments um, or questions. But I'll finish first with another quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi. He said, uh, The Buddha does not offer as a solution for renunciation the method of repression of desire. The tool that the Buddha holds out to free the mind from desire is understanding. Real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so that they no longer bind us. When we understand the nature of desire, when we investigate it closely with keen attention, desire falls away by itself without the need for struggle. And so this is the point of investigation, the point of watching desire, seeing the consequences of desire, seeing how desire feels, seeing what happens when desire releases. And the movement does take us more in the direction of letting go. And we really feel the, the deeper kind of happiness that comes not from having what we want, but from letting go. So we have a couple minutes if there's any comments or questions. Yeah. In my own practice, I find... Okay. A little closer. It's like a karaoke thing. (laughs) (laughs) So in my own practice, I find that the pull of sense pleasure is the strongest when I'm trying to escape from something that is painful. And, 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 And you know it, you know that, and, and when you're unwilling to put yourself and experience that painfully. Yes. And, and, and could you talk? In fact, the Buddha says just this. You know, he says that uh, the, the, the person who um, um, is experiencing pain, the, the person who, the uninstructed person, the only escape from that that they know is pleasure. And so again, it's that, it's that that's, the, that's it, that's all we know. And so the, the part of the exploration, I mean, we have, to be, we have to be compassionate with ourselves because this is hard. The, one of the explorations that we begin to see and that we begin to have possible for us is that when we are experiencing that discomfort, that pain, we might be able to start opening to the pain itself and watching what is that pain consist of? What is, what is that pain? Because often it consists, sometimes it consists of physical pain in the body. Primarily it consists of reactivity in the mind. 
even if it's physical pain that's the source, there's the, the physical pain and then there is the, the reaction to it. And the Buddha talked about this two darts. He says, you know, we have a physical pain and then we have a reaction to it. It's like somebody who's been stabbed with a dart picks up another dart and stabs themselves with a reaction. And so there's, there's the reactivity is a big piece of that. And so one of the places I explore when I'm having pain, maybe mental pain, it could be, could be a pain of a loss, to see if you can understand what is actually happening. Where is the unpleasantness? And what we find is that there's some base level of unpleasantness and then often there's layers and layers of reactivity on top of that. And if you can uh, see some of those layers, sometimes in that exploration you recognize, okay, well, what's happening right now is fear. And boy, I'm afraid of that fear. That's another, another reaction. And then I'm mad at myself for being afraid of that fear. And that's another reaction. And when we can just say, okay, there's fear here. And what is that, the fear? How does that fear feel? Oh, there's contraction in the throat. There's, fl- there's fluttering and agitation. And so, okay, yep, that's there. Just to meet that, the bare experience. Sometimes we might experience the fear without the levels of reactivity. And then we see, oh, I can be with that. That's not so hard. And there are times when those levels of reactivity happen so fast that there's no way, and we kind of like just trying to turn our attention to it is like we're sunk into the quicksand. It's like there's just no traction at all to be present for it. And in that case, you know, if you feel that, you know, it's helpful to have some strategies. Maybe aside from just going to a particular kind of sense pleasure, you know, maybe some, um, there are different levels of skill in, you know, averting our attention. It's helpful when that kind of thing happens, when we get overwhelmed by something painful, to have some strategies to... uh, balance the mind. That might be, um, it, if you connect with metta, you could, you could use the metta practice, or just turn to something neutral. You know, I, when I had that happen, I would just, you know, I was kind of getting overwhelmed by my anger. I recognized, yep, trying to pay attention to you, that's going to pull me down. So I'm going to put my attention on my feet and we're going to take a walk. Okay, just put my attention on my feet. And so that was bringing mindfulness to something not pushing aside, not with aversion, not pushing the pain aside with aversion, but just redirecting the attention. And sometimes, you know, you can try other strategies like maybe putting on some music that you find supports you and being mindful of that or going for a walk in nature. And sometimes we just find ourselves doing our habitual strategies of having a having a piece of chocolate or, um, you know, doing something that just puts us in another space like that. If you make that choice, if it's possible, be mindful you're making that choice. <laughs> so there's a lot, of, a lot of strategies there. Thank you for the question. It's a really important one. We need to stop, but you can ask me the follow-up personally. But yeah, we're out of time, so thank you. Thank you all.